So if you have your Bible, you can open there to Proverbs chapter 18. Uh, we're going to be looking at a, a, lar- a larger section beginning in verse 22, 18-22 through 19-23. As you turn there, I want to begin by asking you a question. And the question is this. What do you want? What do you want? Start thinking about that for a moment. What do you want? Now maybe, I mean, given the context right now, maybe it's like, oh, the right children's ministry answer is Jesus. Jesus. But really, think about what do you want? All kinds of things might pop into your mind at this prompt. Maybe you start thinking about your next meal. Maybe you think about a skill that you want to develop. Uh, Maybe you think about a, a sale that you hope to close. What do you want? Maybe you think about a thing you want to buy. Or maybe your thought goes to something less material and you go to a strained relationship that you have that you just want to see reconciliation. You just want peace. Maybe what your mind goes to is healing. You want freedom from what ails you, whether that be physical or mental. Maybe what you want is some, some kind of time travel. Right? You want to go back to before someone's death or before your kids got older or before that tragedy befell you before you got that diagnosis. If you're older, you might desire to travel back in time. If you're young, perhaps you want to travel forward in time. What do you want? Maybe you, what comes to your mind is something that's yet to happen, whether it be a, a trip that you want to take or, or when I'm a teenager or when I'm an adult. Now there's this assumption that I make in asking this question, what do you want? And the assumption is this, we all want something. We all want something big or small, long-term or short-term, significant or trivial. We are wanting people. And God has made us people who have hearts and loves. We have desires and souls. In John 1, there's this scene where, where two followers of, of John the Baptist, they're, following, they're with John the Baptist and they see Jesus. And this is when John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And these two followers of John the Baptist immediately turn to go follow Jesus. And as they're following Jesus, Jesus turns to them and asks them a question. And the question he asks them is, what are you seeking? Or stated in other words, what do you want? He doesn't ask them about what do you know? What do you believe? He asks them what they want. And answering this question is crucial to those disciples. It's crucial for the life of a Christian. It's crucial for us today. Because what we want, what we desire, has a way of of determining the direction of our lives, of shaping our day-to-day decisions, of, of putting us on a path of either life or death. God has made us people with appetites. We are those who who desire and we pursue what we desire. So as we gather together this morning, we gather as those who want to have our, our loves and our desires, our wants formed by God, and reformed by God. We come together to listen to God, to receive His Word, and to be changed into His likeness. And that's what we're, that's what we're doing all through this time of corporate worship. Every week, this is what we do. We gather to have our, our hearts shaped by the Word of God, by the Spirit of God. And in many ways, this is what Proverbs is also all about. It's a book of wisdom that speaks to our hearts, or it speaks to our desires. It speaks to reality of life in this world, of all that we come across, and intends to shape us into people who love God and His ways. 
And it does it in a, in, in a different way than we're used to. We're used to like, just give me the command, tell me what to do or not to do, or tell me the story. And Proverbs doesn't really come at us like that. Proverbs makes these observations and has these pithy sayings, these statements of, of wisdom and contrasts and, and metaphors and all this stuff going on. But what it's seeking to do is bring us face to face with, with the tragic end of a life of folly contrasted with the radiant hope of a life of wisdom. Again and again, there are two paths. There are two ways to live in Proverbs through, through all of these words, through all these pictures, all this language aims to help us love the right path. Wants our imaginations formed by that right path. To long for the right way. Wants us to, to long for the way that leads to everlasting life and full satisfaction. So this morning we're giving our attention to Proverbs 18.22 through 19.23 and we're going to consider this text. I, I just have three broad headings just to kind of give us some structure as we make our way through it. Sometimes as we go through Proverbs, as you have seen, it can seem a little bit disjointed. And you're kind of like, how, how do we fit this together? And I hope these, these headings give us some, some broad ideas. So number one, first heading, desiring wealth and companions. Desiring wealth and companions. And that'll be verse 22 through chapter 19, verse 7. Now our text begins by making some observations about some of our most fundamental desires. Wealth and companions. We want money and friends. It's a pretty universal human desire. Let's begin by reading together from verses 18, 22 through 19, 7. And then I want to observe three, three truths about these desires. So I will read and follow along with me. This is God's word for us today. Chapter 18, verse 22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. The poor use entreaties, but the rich answer roughly. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Chapter 19. Better is a poor person who walks in his integrity than one who is crooked in speech and is a fool. Desire without knowledge is not good, and whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. Verse 3. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will not escape. Many seek the favor of a generous man, and everyone is a friend to a man who gives gifts. And verse 7, all a poor man's brothers hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He pursues them with words, but does not have them. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we look to your word, would you open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your word. And Lord, by your spirit, would you shape our hearts to desire you and desire your ways. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So just looking at this first section, I want to make three observations that we see here. Uh, the first is this. Money can bring confidence and companions. That's an observation. Money can bring confidence and companions. There's this thread that runs through the section that we just looked at that, that speaks to the confidence and companions that money can bring. So verse 23 observes that 
while the poor use entreaties, meaning that they're, they're weak and they're, they're dependent upon others, the rich answer, roughly. This word roughly, it's a, it's a word that speaks to the confident independence and arrogance of the rich. They answer roughly because they don't need you or anyone else. So they've got this confidence. But even though the rich are independent, plenty of people want to be their friend. Verse 4 tells us that, that wealth brings many friends, many new friends. And verse 6 says that many seek the favor of a generous man, and everyone is a friend to a man who gives gifts. If you are rich, if you have money, and especially if you are generous with that money, Proverbs is observing that it will attract people to you. Everyone will want to be your friend. In this world, the rich have many friends. There are many, many people that want to get on Bill Gates' calendar, right? This is the observation that Solomon makes here. It's not on its own making a value statement. This is just a way the world works. Rich, the rich are, are confident and they have many companions. Another thread that runs through this text is this. So that was the first observation. Second observation is this. People and possessions aren't that reliable. People and possessions aren't that reliable. Chapter 19 opens with this warning saying that it's better to be poor and have integrity than it is to be rich and in sin. Better that you have nothing and do what is right than to be crooked and make yourself a fool. Verse 2 goes on and speaks directly to our desire for gain. It's not good simply to desire to be rich and to do whatever you can, can to get there. The world around us is, is filled with people who are driven by this desire for quick riches. This is why people play the lottery and gamble. This is why, uh, what do they call it, uh, daily fantasy sports is like one of the biggest things in America right now. This is why people are on the hunt for the best investment advice. This is why people will spend, what is it, $400 a year or something like that? Did we see the other day? On CNBC to get Jim Cramer's wealth advice, investment advice. This is why people do it. They want to get rich quick. This is why people are going on Shark Tank. It's why every year people fall for scams that will make them tons of money. They have desire for gain. And they want to pursue it hastily. And whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. The path that he ends up on, the way that he goes, is one that leads to ruin. A ruin that may be financial, or, may, or it may not be, but it's a ruin that is severe and lasting. This is, what the, this is the way of folly that verse 3 tells us. It leads to a heart that rages against the Lord. And if that ruin that comes is financial, if your riches disappear, look at the warning of verse 4. A poor man is deserted by his friend. And verse 7 builds on this. A poor man is hated by his own family. How much more do his friends go far from him? So that, that rich person who was, was confident and had many companions, stuff wasn't as stable as they thought it was. When he was rich, he thought his companions would be his protection, but now that he is poor, he has neither money nor his friends. Everyone has left him. And the, the reality is this, that Solomon's observing. Your companions will not protect you from a terminal diagnosis. They can't keep the stock market from crashing. A man of many companions may come to ruin. This is the observation that our text is making. This is how the world operates. 
But there's a third observation that our text makes, and it points to a, a different desire, a better desire. So many live for, for wealth and for friends. But our text has another desire that brings good along with it. It's a desire that contrasts with this desire for riches. And it's actually pretty surprising how Solomon presents it as we look at it in context. And this desire is what began our section. Observation number three, to find a wife is a good thing. 1822 says this, He who finds a wife finds a good thing. The Hebrew word for finds speaks to this diligent search for a treasure. This is a, this is a man who has desired what is good and has gone on a quest to find it. And here we should hear echoes of what we've seen earlier in Proverbs. In earlier chapters, wisdom is portrayed as what? As a woman. A woman calling out. And in Proverbs 8, verse 35, this woman wisdom, she calls out and she says this, Whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. Solomon's saying that finding a, a good wife, a wife who loves and fears the Lord, who walks in God's ways is a very good thing. It's equivalent to going and finding wisdom. And why, why should a young man find a wife? Our text gives us two reasons. First, it tells us that this is a sign of favor from the Lord. It's a means of strengthening and helping and shaping a man into who God has called him to be. And I know for many of you, you have, for many of you men, you have a wife like this. I know I do. Uh, I heard somebody once say, your wife should be someone who you can say, I cannot be who God made me to be without this person. And Christine is that for me. I cannot be who God made me to be without her. And to find a wife is, is a very, very good thing when that wife is one who fears the Lord. Another reason that this text gives for finding a good wife is this good wife is the one who will be there in the ups and downs, the highs and the lows of life. They are the friend who sticks closer than a brother. And so I just want to speak briefly. This, this applies whether you're married or not, whether you're young or old. We want to have our imagination shaped by this because the world around us wants to say other things, many other things. Uh, one of those things is that having a wife isn't that big of a deal. You don't need a wife. You don't need a spouse. You don't need a husband, whatever it is. And so for you young men in particular, as you go to God's Word, let your go to God's Word first. <laughs> and as you go to God's Word, let your imagination be shaped by what it looks like to have a godly wife, what a godly woman looks like. For you young ladies, same thing. What does it look like to love a godly man? What does a godly man look like? That's the question we should be asking and what we should be looking for as we go to God's Word. It is a good thing. And so as Solomon begins speaking about navigating the desires of riches and friends, what he holds out, what Proverbs holds out to us is the good of desiring and seeking a godly spouse, a companion who will walk with you for better or worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. Desire, to desire this is a good thing and a blessing from God. So that's our first section. We talk about desiring wealth and companions. Second section is this, desiring wisdom. Desiring wisdom. Rather than reading through the whole section, we're going to go through this just one verse at a time. Our section begins with verse 8, a verse that's a summary of one of the main themes of the whole book of Proverbs. Whoever gets sense loves his own soul. He who keeps understanding will discover good. 
If you love yourself, if you want what is good, then get sense. Get wisdom and keep it. Hold fast to it. Make it your meditation. Fill your mind with it. Whoever gets sense loves his own soul. We live in a culture of people who, who would say they love their own souls, right? I mean, the, the self-care industry is booming. If you really do love your own soul, get sense, get wisdom. And what is wisdom? Wisdom is to know God and His ways. But it's not just a matter of, of the mind of thinking the right thing. It's a matter of our, our desires, of our loves. Wisdom is loving God and loving His ways. In verse 8, there's this word used about loving our own soul. The word used here for love highlights our desires. It's to desire something so strongly that you faithfully strive to be with it. I could say that I love running, and then you, then you ask, oh, when's the last time you went running? It's like, oh, I, like I haven't, like since last year sometime. Like, that doesn't make any sense. To, to love something means that you desire it so strongly that you faithfully strive to be with it. I could say I love my wife, and I demonstrate that by faithfully being with her, talking to her, spending time with her, caring for her. Solomon tells us here, desire wisdom. Desire what is good for your soul and keep it. Hold on to it. Don't let it go. And this wisdom is brought to bear on what we say, how we think, how we act, how we treat others. It's brought to bear on everything in our life. And the rest of our section applies wisdom to our life, both in public and in private. So in verse 19, we hear echoes of verse 5. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will perish. Verse 5 told us that the one who breathes out lies will not escape. There's no avoiding the destruction that a lying tongue will bring forth. If you lie, it will not go well with you. If you lie, you will perish. So why does anybody ever lie? Well, we lie because we think it will get us what we want. We think that it will help us avoid punishment, or it will avoid embarrassment, or that it will get us the approval that we desire. We lie because we think it will get us what we want, but our deceit only leads to destruction. You cannot lie yourself out of being punished by God. God hates lying lips. So wisdom applied to our speech means don't lie. Verse 10 observes the folly of the world. It's not fitting for a fool to live in luxury, much less for a slave to rule over princes. This is kind of one of those verses we come to and it's like, huh, okay. A world that rejects God's ways is a world that turns things on its head. It's a world that overthrows and subverts what God has put in place. And that's what Solomon's observing here. In this world of folly, you have fools living in luxury and slaves ruling over princes. It's not good. Verse 11 speaks to both our words and our actions. It says this, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Now this verse is, has, to me, been one of those unexpected treasures. I remember reading this verse probably about 15 years ago. And it was a time where... Just on my commute, I, I was just always impatient. I was always on edge, and I was always angry at the people driving around me. And I remember one morning reading this verse, and it like just jumped off the page at me. Good sense makes one slow to anger. I like, I like to think that I have good sense. And here I am getting angry at every 
in my mind, idiot driver around me. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it's his glory to overlook an offense. So if I'm going to be one of good sense, and if I want the glory that comes with that good sense, what am I going to do when somebody does something they shouldn't on the road? I'm going to overlook that offense. Wisdom makes the point that it is always better to overlook, to forbear, to forgive, than it is to get angry. But anger is a reality in this world. And you don't want to be on the wrong side of the king's anger. Verse 12 says this, A king's wrath is like the growling of a lion. To come across an angry king is like coming upon a a growling, roaring lion. There's a powerful threat soon to follow. He will trample over all those who stand in his way. That's not a king you want to be around. But the one who is slow to anger, the one who overlooks offenses, who is patient and gracious, that king, his favor is like dew on the grass. So verse 12 says, this dew, think about, I mean, a, a drier climate. This dew that comes in, in the morning is life-giving. And it comes consistently. And it comes not because of anything that you're doing. It comes as undeserved blessing. And it's a wonderful thing to receive this king's favor. Now turning to verses 13 to 15, we see wisdom applied to the home. In verse 13, we see this picture of a dysfunctional home marked by a foolish son and a quarrelsome wife. A foolish son is ruined to his father, and a wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. Just yesterday, I was at a helping coach at a, a uh, track and field meet, and before the meet started at the coach's meeting, the guy running the meet said, so... Over in turn three, there's a drip from the ceiling. It's, well, it's not, and it's not from outside, it's from the vents, and it's dripping right into lane one. And, like, and we can't do anything about it. And it's a steady drip. Is everybody okay with that? I mean, that was kind of the, that was the conversation. And we were all okay. We didn't shut down the meat or anything. But it was annoying. There's a puddle in lane one for a track meet. Like, it's indoor. That's not cool. A quarreling wife is like that just continual drip and could lead to the shutting down of the track meet. (laughs) Consequences are far more serious in that case. This dysfunctional home is contrasted with a functional and godly home of verse 14. House and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Wisdom leads to faithful work, generous provision, and is a sign of favor from the Lord. And it's marked by the good wife, the wise companion, the wife that we considered earlier. She's, she's prudent, so she, she walks in wisdom. She's restrained where she should be restrained. And that is a gift from the Lord. But Proverbs wants us to consider, wait, what, what made the son foolish in the dysfunctional home? Why did that foolish son bring ruin to his father? He's the one who destroyed the inheritance from his father. But how? Verse 15 expands on it. Slothfulness casts into a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. Proverbs points to laziness, sloth. That proved to be the destruction of this home. You'd think it would be more sensational, right? Like, what ruins this home? Oh, my son was lazy. It's pretty shocking. 
And what verse 15 does, it describes the lazy person as one who is cast into a deep sleep. They're shut off from the reality of life, shut off from the rest of the world. And this fool, being cast into a deep sleep, chooses to ignore the consequences of his actions until he reaches the point where he has nothing to eat. It's a tragic picture. Desire, to desire wisdom and to live as the wise is to apply wisdom to everything that we do. What we, what we say, what we think, how we treat one another. And this final section of our text that we're going to look at shifts from, from shaping our desires to really more direct teaching. So this is our third section, learning to live. Verses 16 to 23. Verse 16 begins this way. Whoever keeps the commandment keeps his life. He who despises his ways will die. This verse echoes verse 8. If we walk in the ways of wisdom, if we walk according to God's ways, then we will find life. And everything here hinges upon what we think of God and His Word. If we, it's not up to us to evaluate God. What do I think about Him? What do the experts say? Our evaluation of God or His commands doesn't mean anything in this equation. It's irrelevant. Whoever keeps the commandment keeps his life. He who despises his ways will die. God is the one who is reality definer. There's nothing more real than God. He is ultimate reality. Everything else finds their, its meaning in relation to Him. Either we accept and keep what He says and live, or we reject what He says and die. There are only two ways to live. So how then do we live as those keeping God's ways? Well, the first thing that this section tells us is that we give. Verse 17, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and He will repay him for his deed. We give. We are a giving people. We are generous to the poor. This verse carries with it this, this promise that God will reward those who are gracious and kind to the poor. The poor, those we are generous with, they may not be able to ever repay us, but the Lord sees what we give, and the Lord will provide for all that we need. Verse 18 tells us that living in wisdom also means that we will discipline our children. Verse 18 says, Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Walking in wisdom means we discipline. To fail to discipline our children, to fail to correct their way and lead them in the path of life is allowing death to take root in your child's heart. This is tragic. But we don't need to hate our children in this way, for there is hope. We have hope, so we discipline. But there can be a temptation at times to stop disciplining our children. Right? They're never going to get it. I'm just going to ignore it. They keep doing the same thing over and over again. I'm just going to ignore it. Verse 19 warns us. A man of great wrath will pay the penalty. For if you deliver him, you will only have to do it again. This verse makes the point that if we stop punishing sin that has become a habit, habitual sin, we are not solving anyone's problem. Maybe temporarily we are. In that moment, we get a moment of peace. But sparing someone from the consequences of their actions does not help the sinner. But there is another way. There's another path. 
And if you are the son or daughter receiving discipline, verse 20, verse 20 is, is for you. Verse 20 says this, Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Receiving instruction has a long-term effect. To receive and accept instruction, even if it is something that hurts in the moment, it will have lasting benefits for you. Long-term gain is had in receiving and accepting instruction. You might have plans for your life. You might have hopes for your own future, but fixing your eyes on the Lord and His ways is always the way to go. It will always be better. And so verse 21 reminds us, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. None above Him, none before Him, all of time in His hands. For His throne it shall remain and ever stand. We are those walking in wisdom who are to go beyond our own plans and turn to keeping God's commands, walking in His way, looking toward His purpose, for that is what will stand. Verse 22 and 23 says this, What is desired in a man is steadfast love, and a poor man is better than a liar. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. To fear the Lord is to live with reverence and awe before God. It's to live in, in joyful trembling before Him, knowing that He is God and we are not. But what a hope there is here, because the fear of the Lord, living this way, Acknowledging that God is God and that His ways are best is a path that leads to life. And whoever has it rests satisfied. We all want things, right? We all crave. David Foster Wallace, he, he once famously said this, not a Christian in any way, shape, or form, but he shared this at a, a commencement speech at Kenyon College. He said, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan mother goddess or the four noble truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep this fear at bay. 
Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they are unconscious. They're default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. What Foster Wallace says, there's much truth to it. There's also some not truth to it. But he hits well the note of the reality that we all worship. And the things that we worship, they will shape us and they will determine how we live, the direction of our lives. And Proverbs calls us to walk in the fear of the Lord. He is the only thing worth having. He's the only thing we need. And He should be the only thing that we want. And so we live as a people on this side of Christ's return who are constantly in danger of of slipping into this unconscious worship that's formed by the world. And so we go to God's Word day in and day out. We live life together in fellowship with one another, encouraging one another day in and day out. We gather together week after week to be built into who we're called to be as God's people, to be reminded of what is really real and what really matters and what's worth living for. We have a glorious hope in the fact that although this world holds out all these things that will never satisfy us, we have Jesus who alone can satisfy. Jesus is wisdom in the flesh. He is God with us. He came as poor, yet he walked in integrity, keeping God's word, walking in God's ways, never wavering, never faltering, a poor person who walked in integrity. That was Jesus. Yet, his brothers hated him. His friends went far from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. But our rejection of him did not lead him to turn to us in anger, but instead he turns to us in love, in mercy, in grace. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The righteous one who came in wisdom is the one who came to be the friend of sinners. He's the friend who sticks closer than a brother. He is the one who came to be our savior. And now in Jesus, God's favor is like dew on the grass. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. And it's his glory to give us redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom. And this is our hope this morning. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. This is not a promise that trouble will not befall us in this life. But as we look to Jesus, as we desire Jesus, as we look to him and delight in him, we rest satisfied. And it's like an overflowing satisfaction, a satisfaction that won't run out. Troubles may come in this life. Things may not work out like we hoped, but we have a hope that goes far beyond the grave. We have a life that's stronger than death in Jesus. 
And in him, we see that our God is for us. Our God is with us. He is among us. He goes before us. He intercedes for us. So then, brothers and sisters, who can stand against us? What have we to fear? May God make known to us the path of life. May we know that in his presence there is fullness of joy, that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Would you pray with me? Oh God, you are our God. Give us hearts that earnestly seek you. Help us to thirst for you, to long for your ways. And Lord, may we be satisfied. May our souls be satisfied in you. May we as a people repent of our, our self-sufficiency, of our, our self-love, our pursuit of self-satisfaction. And when we have hearts and desires, minds and thoughts that are directed to you, for your glory, for the good of your people. Amen.